0: If you haven't been here for the past few weeks or you're watching online for the first time, uh, we are in a new sermon series called A Very Short Introduction. And what we're doing is trying to look at the whole life of a Bible character, not just some of the bits and pieces that we may be used to. Uh, So far, we've looked at the Apostle Peter, the High Priest Aaron, and King Saul. And this series is not just about finding out new and interesting facts about these characters we want to know what God is up to in the lives of these characters we want to answer the question can men and women really change can we be made better can we be made more holy more just more righteous and in the life of the apostle Peter we actually do see change we see a cowardly traitor become a loyal friend to Jesus So the answer at first seems to be, yes, men and women really can change. But then we looked at the life of Aaron, and we saw that we needed to add a little bit of a qualifier. He was a brave man. He did very self-sacrificial things, but for the rest of his life, he had temptation. It's not like temptation went away all of a sudden. And so we we do know that God can change us, but we're never perfect in this life. In the life of King Saul, we saw some bad news. Men and women can change, but for the worse— King Saul started actually very strong in his reign and rule over Israel, but then he went into a downward spiral and he self-destructed. Today, we're looking at the prophet Jonah. And there are a lot of stories in the Bible that are famous, and sometimes their fame actually obscures some of their meaning. We focus on parts of the story without seeing the whole. And that's so true of Jonah's story. He's so famous he's so well known that his fame actually hides the edginess and bite of the story so I want you to bracket for this morning whatever you remember you've been taught about Jonah to see the whole course of his life from beginning to end because I want to address that question in a new light we've been asking so far can men and women really change but the question I want to answer this morning is do we really want people to change because I think many of us assume, well, yeah, it, it would be great if everybody changed for the better. Wouldn't it be wonderful if bad people became good? Wouldn't we all be so happy if all of the lost were found, if all sinners repented? But I think we need to be honest about ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves. There is an aspect of the human heart that is not pretty. And we're going to talk about it this morning. It is the case... That many of us, if not all of us, derive pleasure from getting worked up about people we hate. I want to say this another time because it may be uncomfortable to say at church, but it's true. We derive pleasure from getting worked up about people we hate. Sure, we put on a great show about wanting our enemies to change. If only they were different. But deep down, ask yourself for a second... If you had an enemy, someone you really didn't like so much, finally changed, would you want them to be on your team? Would you want to be associated with them? Pick an enemy, pick someone you don't prefer, and ask yourself, do you really want them on your side of the aisle? What if they were on your team? It's really common for Christians to say, well, I have no enemies, I love everyone, You may not be buying what I'm saying, but I want you to revisit the story of Jonah and ask yourself if this is true about you. We're going to go back 700 years before Jesus, so 27 centuries ago, to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is before the exile. This is before they're carried off and deported to a foreign country. This new king came to power named Jeroboam II, and he ruled over uh, Israel for 40 years. And this is the summary we have about Jeroboam II. In summary, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he didn't turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam first. And we're actually told only about one good deed he did in his 40-year reign as king. He restored the boundaries of Israel... And we're told that he did that in accordance with the word of the Lord from a prophet named Jonah. This is the only other time we hear about Jonah in the Bible other than the book dedicated to his name. So we know, at least in theory, that Jonah has no problem hearing a word from the Lord and taking it and giving that message to a wicked king. At least in theory, this is true about Jonah until this happens. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has risen up before me. Now, everyone in Israel, including Jonah, viewed the Assyrian empire where that capital city Nineveh is as the arch nemesis of Israel. They had heard rumors and stories about the way the Assyrian kings bragged about cutting off the limbs of enemy soldiers. So on the one hand, you'd think, okay, Jonah's excited for the opportunity to preach against this enemy. He might be thrilled to bring the bad news that God has judgment for Nineveh. But on the other hand, you might understand a little bit of the fear rising up in his heart. What lone prophet all by himself wants to travel miles and miles and miles to go to a foreign city to tell them all how they're going to burn? He's not going to last 24 hours in that city. So you could understand what he does next. Jonah runs away from the Lord, and he heads for a city called Tarshish. Now, this is probably modern-day Spain, so I'm going to refer to it that way from now on. He goes to a port city, he finds a ship, and he pays the fare, gets on the ship, and goes to Spain. What you need to know about the geography is that he's headed west And the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh is east. He is headed in the exact opposite direction. And I want you to look at that last phrase on the screen. The book doesn't tell us Jonah did this because he was just so afraid of dying. No. We know exactly why he's headed to Spain. He is leaving the presence of the Lord. He wants to flee from God, but... God's not actually going to let him get away. He's on this ship and the Lord sends this great wind on the sea and it's so violent that the ship is breaking up. All the sailors, you feel bad for them. These are all pagan sailors with all their own gods and they each cry out to their own God. There's that sailor talking to his pagan God and this other sailor talking to his pagan God and that's not all working. So they start to get really practical and start shoving off all of the cargo from the ship. And remember, they deliver cargo for a living. If they don't do this job, they are out of a job for a long time. So they clearly must think our lives are at stake. The gods haven't worked for us. We're going to throw off all the cargo. We're doing anything to save our own lives. And meanwhile, Jonah's napping. He's so content. He's so happy with his decision. He is so unfazed by everything going on around him and above board that he's deep asleep in the hole of the ship. And the captain runs down into the hole and says, how can you be asleep right now? Get up, call on your God. We we haven't called on your God yet. We don't really know who he is. So maybe he's going to stop this. Maybe he'll take notice of us because our gods aren't working. The cargo method isn't exactly working. So they start casting lots. And the lot falls on Jonah, and you can see all these big, burly sailors surrounding Jonah in the whole of the ship, and you can hear all of them interrogating him. Who's responsible for this? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They want to know answers right now, because they're all about to die, and he's their last hope. And so Jonah answers very confidently, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land which is terrifying because the sailors do the math. We know that you are running away from the Lord and you say that that Lord, that God, whoever he is, made the sea. And now the sea seems to be trying to kill us. So clearly this is your fault. Jonah is admitting it. He's saying my God is punishing me and as a result of punishing me, he's punishing all of you. It's like It's like Jonah isn't afraid of dying at all. It's like he wants them to kill him. Which is exactly what he suggests. This is Jonah's first idea. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He's suggesting human sacrifice. And the sailors actually don't go for it at first. They try any last chance of not doing this to Jonah. And they try to row back to land. But the storm is even crazier. And so they just give up and they say, They actually pray to God, which by the way, Jonah hasn't done so far. They pray to God and they say, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. They don't realize Jonah's not so innocent. Lord, you've done as you please. They take Jonah, they throw him overboard. And you just got to picture this for a second his hand sinks below the surface. And this raging storm that is threatening to break this ship up disappears. Totally vanishes. They know Jonah is responsible for the storm. Now we come to the part of the story that modern people typically find really hard to believe. We're told in Jonah, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I asked everybody to bracket what they've heard about this story for just this morning because here's the bizarre truth. The Bible never explicitly says that Jonah is alive in the belly of this fish. If you can show me that verse, I'd be happy to read it, but I don't see it. In fact, when we have a prayer from Jonah... He actually says that he died. From the realm of the dead, I called for help. You, Lord, brought my life up from the pit. The Hebrew word he uses is sheol, which is where dead people go. This prayer in chapter 2 is his dying breath, him calling out to God to save him, and he dies. And if you want kind of a New Testament confirmation of this theory, it comes from Jesus. Jesus. Jesus compares his death and resurrection one time to an event in the Old Testament, and it is to Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so will the Son of Man be buried in the earth. Jesus says the only sign that this generation is going to receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what happened to Jonah? He died. Just like Jesus dies. But God hears his prayer in his dying breath and saves him. The Lord commands this fish and vomits the corpse of Jonah onto dry land. And the very first word we read after he is vomited out on dry land is a word from God, which is arise. The Hebrew word is kum, which sounds a lot like that word that Jesus uses when he raises a girl from the dead. Talitha kum. Jonah wasn't alive in the fish. He was dead. And God rose him from the dead and repeats the exact same command from the very first verse of chapter one. He says, go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And I think the funniest verse in the Bible. And so Jonah obeys. (laughs) This time, I don't want to repeat the whole large fish experiment I don't want to do that anymore okay this time I'm going to go to Nineveh so he walks and walks and walks all the way to the great city and I'm not exaggerating here he uses five Hebrew words to convey his message to Nineveh and they are translated in more English words he announces in the great city 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown If you've ever read any other prophetic book, you'll notice that they're long. In your year Bible reading plan, they take up a huge portion. Isaiah is 66 chapters, and Jonah preaches five words. So yeah, he's obedient to God, but it is a bare minimum obedience. He's doing the absolute minimalist approach to obeying God. And based on this tiny little wimpy sermon, this happens. All the Ninevites believe. I mean, seriously, from the lowest peasant slave to the king of Nineveh, they believe a universal fast is proclaimed. Even the king himself issues a decree. This is law. Everyone, everyone has to fast, and it's not just human beings. The king of of Assyria says, you know what, we're not even going to let animals eat. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And this is what he's banking on. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And we're told these words from chapter 3 of Jonah. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It turns out men and women really can change. But sometimes we aren't happy about that. Because Jonah is livid. Whenever God communicates this decision to his prophet, we're told, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And we read this second prayer to the Lord from the mouth of Jonah. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, man, I knew it. I knew you would do this. I called it before it even happened. God This is exactly what I tried to delay by going all the way to Spain. I didn't want your plan to work. I even tried to force your hand to make those pagan sailors kill me. I wanted them to kill the messenger so the message could never arrive in Nineveh. Jonah wants to be an obstacle to God's plan. He's not afraid of death. He's wanted to die from chapter 1, verse 1. And he's wanted to die because he actually knows God pretty well. He says, I just knew, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. A God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you were going to be a pushover. I knew you were going to be a weak-willed wimp. I know the way you forgive people. I know the way you forgive sinners. I just don't want these sinners to be forgiven, God. And because you didn't let me stay dead, please this time just finish the job. Just take away my life, because it's, it's, it's just going to be better for me to die than to live. I would rather Be buried in the ground and see these Ninevites forgiven. And the Lord replies to this little pity party speech and says, Oh, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah actually doesn't answer God's question. He actually has a plan and a theory. He leaves the city of Nineveh because he actually still holds out a little bit of hope. He thinks, what if these savages don't last the whole 40 days? God's forgiveness is based on repentance, and what if they unrepent? Maybe they're going to relapse. Maybe they'll go back to their old ways, and maybe they'll revert back to their violence. I mean, these are gluttonous animals we're talking about. These are the Ninevites. They aren't going to be able to do a 40-day fast. So maybe if they break the fast, then God will really send judgment on them in the end, and they'll finally get what's coming to them. So Jonah finds a little spot to watch Sodom and Gomorrah happen all over again. And he just wants some space in between him and the city that he hopes God nukes. So he makes this little shelter above his head. He wants some shade from the Assyrian sun. The 40 days aren't up just yet, it's day 39, and it's a sweltering day. And then this happens under his little makeshift umbrella God provides this leafy plant that grows up over Jonah's head to give him shade, to ease Jonah's discomfort. And for the first time in this book, Jonah's very happy. He smiles for the first time. He goes to sleep, so comfortable. He sleeps soundly and waits for day number 40, the last day for God's potential destruction of Nineveh. But while Jonah is still asleep in the middle of the night, God sends a little worm to eat up this leafy plant so that it withers. The worm chews the plant, it withers and dies. And so when Jonah wakes up in the morning, he's drenched in sweat. And for the third time, he just wishes he were dead. It would be better for me to die than to live God actually repeats his question this time he says hey Jonah just real quick um, is it right for you to be angry about this plant and this time Jonah answers he says you know what God it is I'm so angry I wish I were dead and then God speaks the final word of this book in chapter four Jonah I just want to say one last thing You've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It actually just sprang up overnight and died overnight. In light of that, should I not have concern for the entire city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't even tell their right hand from their left? This is the last verse in the book of Jonah. It's a question that gets no answer. In other words, God ends his sermon with a little object lesson. All right, Jonah, so you are happy when I show mercy to just little old you to save you some, a little bit of discomfort, like a sunburn on your forehead, But you're unhappy, let's just be clear, you're unhappy when I show mercy to 120,000 of your enemies, who are humans, by the way. You're concerned about this one little dead plant, which I miraculously grew in one day for you, but you think it's wrong for me to be concerned about ignorant Ninevites who can't even tell their right hand from their left. we got to ask ourselves, do we derive pleasure from getting worked up about people we hate? Jonah did. Do we want our enemies to just get what's coming to them? Do we want to think that God is wrong to show mercy to repentant sinners? Do we want to pretend to know better than God who he should save and who he shouldn't, because, of course, God should save me and not my enemy. This sickness is so deep within us. I'm happy because you're sad. We're delighted because they, this other group, are miserable. His calamity is her joy. Her downfall is his success. Jonah is the embodiment of this sin on display for us. Because sometimes we, we actually know exactly who our enemies are, and we want them to stay that way. We don't pray for God to do justice. We want justice without mercy. We want punishment without an opportunity for grace. We don't want our enemies to change because, well, then who would we be, really? I mean, who would we be if the bad guys actually became good guys? Now, we know from Paul's letter to Timothy that God wants everyone to be saved, which means that God wants all of your enemies, all the people who drive you crazy, all the people who make no sense to you to be changed. And let's think about it from an eternal perspective for just one second. Entertain this thought that God might give eternal life, heaven, in all of its glory, to some people you despise the most. That's what we learn from Jonah. God can change the lives of our enemies even if we don't want him to. Because I may like it when God finds my lost soul, but do I like it when God finds a lost soul that I wish stayed lost?